Welcome to another episode of Career Library, the place where real people talk about real life careers. Now let me introduce to you your host in the red trunks weighing in at 220 pounds, the lean, mean, colorful commentator and intricate interviewer, the awesome and entrepreneurial Chris Hold the Phones, it's Jones. Welcome to another episode of Career Library. I'm your host, Chris Jones, and today we will be talking about uh, my family and I's mission trip to uh, the Republic of Ireland. So it was in December of 2004, uh, my wife and I, along with our three children, were very tired from a long flight from Chicago to Dublin, Ireland. My poor wife had gotten airsick um, and was in horrible shape. I felt so bad for her. Um, we get off the plane and we're going through customs and I'm wanting to get her through there as quickly as possible to get my wife to a more comfortable surroundings. And uh, when I was asked why we were coming to Ireland without thinking, I said one of the stupidest things ever. I said, we were coming here to live for a while. Well, the Irish government was like, really? Uh, that's what you're coming here to do. So they uh, detained us for several hours, and uh, I explained to them what we were, that we weren't refugees and that uh, we were sp actually sponsored into the country and we had full financial support and what we were going to be doing there. And once they checked everything out, they let us into the country, and uh, that was a horrible way to start off. <laughs> our mission trip to Ireland. So uh, once on the island, we stayed with another missionary family um, so that we could get get our uh, bearings and also find a place to rent. So we also needed to uh, get our p visa paperwork uh, together and get it completed uh, so that we could actually stay on the island. So a funny story, uh, when we first got there, we uh, rented a car at the airport and in Ireland they drive on the opposite side of the road that the US drives on so a couple nights after landing uh, my wife and I we decided to go out and adventure for a little bit and go down to the local gas station and pick up a newspaper and get some snacks and stuff and so we were in a little uh, town outside of Dublin Ireland called Leakslip and uh, at that time and so we uh, left and went to the gas station I started um, driving down the road, went down the road, had no problems, got there. When we left there, we were talking, my wife and I, and uh, we were driving back, and I was about 30 feet down the road when I was uh, going head-to-head -head with a taxi cab that was honking his horn at me, and I realized that my wife was uh, yelling at me and telling me, uh, you're on the wrong side of the road, you're on the wrong side of the road. So I adverted uh, nearly hitting a taxi cab and managed to drive back on the proper side of the road uh, the rest of the way back to the house. And so uh, getting used to uh, some of the, the things that are hard to get used to at first was uh, the currency. Um, they were on the euro there in Ireland and they have many different coins so they have uh, a 50 cent piece is how I'm going to relate it a one euro coin and a two euro coin along with uh, the uh, the two the ten the twenty um, dime, the, the cents pieces so um, in the euro uh, took a little while to get used to um, we could we would hand the uh, the clerks at a store paper euro and then they would give us these coins back and so it was just crazy to us because uh, in the states we always put um, our coins like into a jar and so on and so forth um, you know especially when we travel we put them in there and then we would uh, you know go to Walmart and then use the change thing and uh, convert it into cash and so I think one time that we were there after about six months after our first six months we had over a hundred euro in in the jar uh, because we didn't carry around all these coins and it's very cumbersome because uh, the coins do have some weight to them so but I mean literally you could have you know 30 euro in your pocket uh, and your pocket be all bulged out with uh, two and one euro <laughs> coins so and then uh, so shortly after we arrived there in Ireland we secured a car it was a Mazda 323 I think it was a late 90s model uh, it had a standard shift and it was on the uh, the steering wheels on the drivers uh, the driver's side on the opposite of the US uh, cars so it would be in the passenger side uh, here in the US and so for me it was absolutely awesome because I could shift with my left hand steer with my right hand and so um, I think um, the Americans uh, missed out on having that experience um, here in the United States if you never ever get the chance to drive a car that's a right side drive or a passenger side drive as you would think here in the United States absolutely do it uh, it's absolutely fun to do and um, but my wife she she kind of my wife and I both know how to drive st standard cars stick shifts uh, but my wife really really didn't like like driving the car um, and the main reason 
she didn't like to drive over there was the roads were so n narrow. So they have very narrow roads in Ireland, um, and they had right on the edge of the road was typically a 10 to 12 feet high uh, hedgerow on both sides of the road. Um, and so it was not uncommon that while you were driving that you would clip mirrors with oncoming traffic. So that would be uh, pretty scary. Uh, or you would rub up against the hedgerow and knock your mirror into your car. And so you, uh, <laughs> so if you know how to drive in Ireland, you can definitely drive anywhere here in the United States. Um, so, but after we were there for a while, we did get us a car that was an automatic. It was a late 90s Subaru Impreza station wagon, and my wife liked the car, and I remember the first time that she drove it, um, she went out uh, with my, I think it was my oldest daughter, they went to the store, and they came back, and she came in the house, she was crying, I asked her what was wrong, she said she was pulling in the driveway and hit the gate and scraped the side of the car, and I went out and looked at it, it was really no big deal, uh, I was able to buff most of it out, but uh, that was another thing, uh, just narrow passageways, uh, entryways into uh, parking lots, into your house, um, uh, to the estates and everything else, so, uh, well, getting, I'm sorry, got sidetracked there on the cars for a little bit, uh, that was something that was exciting to me, I really liked the, uh, driving on the opposite side of the road, uh, going back to, uh, into, our, uh, to our trip in Ireland, um, after we got the Mazda, we did find a place to rent in a village called Selbridge in County Kildare, it's about a, uh, half hour, hour, uh, hour and a half uh, from about an hour and a half from Dublin. Uh, this town was a great place for us to set up our mission work. There were a lot of modern amenities uh, such as internet, a grocery store, a gas station, and even had a post office and two banks. And one of the uh, things that we learned early in living in in this foreign country in Ireland is to pay attention to the exchange rate. Uh, this can make a huge difference in the amount of money that you have each month. Uh, you see here in the uh, we were getting paid in U.S. dollars and their currency being in the euro. And so um, the exchange rate would be anywhere from 28 to 40 percent. So when we converted our dollar to, uh, to euro, we would literally lose, you know, 28 cents on a dollar or 40 cents on a dollar, depending on the exchange rate. And so we would always pay attention to what that exchange rate was and we'd go pull money out. Uh, we used, typically pulled money out four, four times a month, um, you know, once a week to uh, be able to live off of and to pay our bills and stuff like that. Another thing uh, that took took getting used to uh, in Ireland was the uh, Irish do things in their own time. For example, the first time we w <laughs> I went to the post office, it was around lunchtime, I guess around two o'clock uh, in the afternoon, haha. <laughs> and uh, we got there, uh, got, and when I got there, there was a sign on the door that said, out for lunch, be back in an hour, with no time of when they left and no time <laughs> when they would be back. So I asked somebody that was walking down the street uh, if they knew when the po post office would open up again. And the gentleman said to me, oh, 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 Donnie, he, he's probably over there in the pub across the street having a pint. Just go over there and ask for him and he'll come and open up for you. And so I, I did. And sure enough, uh, Donnie, <laughs> Donnie with his red cheeks and nose stood up and, uh, and at the bar when I went in and asked for him and the uh, bartender pointed him out and uh, he came over and he opened up the uh, post office and we conducted business and after I was done he followed me out and locked the door and went back over to the pub and so it took some getting used to another one was uh, that could be very frustrating was the banks uh, the banks were supposed to be open at 10 a.m. to 4, p 4 p.m. each day and I think America's kind of going to that standard here at least in the Houston area lately um, um, and uh, so I would get there oftentimes, you know, around 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and they would still be sitting in there counting their drawers uh, and would not open the building until they were done. So uh, you were, even if you wanted to use the ATM machine inside, didn't matter. They weren't going to unlock the doors until they were done counting their drawers and everything. And so you might not get into there till 11 o'clock. But the rest of the businesses seem to keep uh, to their schedules for the most part. And uh, so, I mean, you have the mom and pops and stuff that may close down for lunch or something like that. Um, another challenge was uh, getting used to getting ripped off uh, for the first in the first time that you visited one of these mom and pop shops. Um, interesting note: Ireland still to this day will not allow companies like Walmart and into their country uh, because they say it destroys small businesses and generational livelihoods. I happen to agree with this mentality. I think it's absolutely brilliant that they don't do that to their society, and I, 
uh, I wish that we wouldn't have done it here. Looking back, but hindsight's always 2020. But that's a different discussion for a different day. Uh, anyway, the local hardware, um, automotive shop, automotive supply stores and general stores would overcharge the foreigners uh, the first time that they did business with them. Uh, most mom and pop stores in Ireland would have uh, no prices on the items, so you would have to ask uh, how much something was. And when they looked you over or heard your accent, they knew that uh, you were a foreigner and they would charge you more than, uh, than what it was normally cost. So I remember buying windshield wipers for my car one time. I went into this automotive shop uh, that was there. It was crammed full of all kinds of stuff walls and tables and there was stuff sitting on the floor and I asked the guy at the counter and the counter was completely covered with stuff and uh, if, if he had uh, windshield wipers for my Mazda and he pointed to the wall full of wipers and said over there the Irish are not customer service oriented for the most part so I went through and dug through a bunch of wipers until I found a pair that looked like they'd fit my car um, they said uh, full for full-size Mazda cars so I went to the counter and uh, to pay and asked how much uh, it would cost and he looked me over and he said to me 25 euro plus tax and so these wipers cost me about $30 US uh, at best they were $14 worth about $14 US at the time so I paid it and kept going back to him for everything I needed from my car and eventually the prices got better um, another thing uh, just talking about getting ripped off there was thieves everywhere in Ireland um, while the while the Irish, I, I don't understand this, um, they have a lot of problem with theft. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, not all the Irish were thieves, but there are certainly a large percentage of them that like to like to use your stuff without asking. Uh, while we lived there, we had our hubcaps uh, stolen off of our Mazda. We had two car radios stolen, out, one out of the Mazda and one out of the Subaru. Um, interesting thing um, about car thieves uh, there in Ireland is they would steal a car and they drive it around and they crash it into stuff uh, and go joyriding and when they were out of gas they would stop and just set the car on fire and walk away so uh, you would see burnt cars in town in the towns on the weekends and uh, in the countryside and so um, they actually uh, did steal my Mazda uh, so it was never found and I could never figure that out because we're on an island but um, looking back I'm glad it wasn't found because that would have been a, a real pain with the insurance company so um yeah they are they're very much thieves over there so just if you a lot of pickpockets in dublin and stuff like that so just if you travel over there just pay attention to your surroundings because your stuff will walk off um the weather in ireland uh so i want to touch on that so the weather in ireland is not great but it's not horrible it's blah uh so the average temperature year round is about 50 degrees which in itself is not bad nor is it great it rains uh, almost every day there. Um, the clouds and fog and mist uh, just kind of really destroys your psyche uh, because of the lack of sunshine will drive you mad. Uh, the winters are the worst as the sun comes up around 8.30 a.m., stays on the horizon all day because you're so far north, and then goes down around 4.30 in the afternoon. So for about six months of the year, you would have very little sunshine, which can cause a person to become depressed and just uh, really changes your mood. Sunlight does have a lot to do with your mood. Um, so we, uh, it was very, uh, very hard at first to uh, get used to that. Um, so over time, we managed to make some trips off of the island to get some sunshine um, so that we could, uh, so that we could function. And so um, let's go. I'm getting sidetracked again. So let's go off to our mission uh, that we were there in Ireland to do itself. Um, let's go into that, why we were there in the first place. So we were there as missionaries sent from the Baptist Church uh, in the States to go establish churches in Ireland. Our goal was to work with the people of Ireland and to establish churches that would be operated by the Irish people. Uh, so our first big challenge was finding people to go to our church. Um, so in the first six months, we passed out thousands of invitations by going door to door, leaving flyers, talking to people at their homes and on the streets. We would go from village to village, doing the same thing over and over again. Then we had a breakthrough. Uh, we had a couple of families start
start coming and then more and more before we knew it. We had a small congregation of about 30 to 60 people that were attending on a regular basis. Uh, the interesting thing was that uh, we had a hodgepodge of people uh, from all different nationalities. We had people from Malaysia, the Philippines, England, Norway, Argentina, South Africa, India, and of course Ireland. Uh, this in itself presented its own challenges as all these nationalities had different uh, backgrounds and different ways of doing things. The other problem that we had is that when I would teach in the church, I spoke too fast. So I had to slow it down a bit so that they could understand me because of the language barriers. Um, but overall, it was uh, great having these folks together to build the church. Over time, we figured out what our, ni our, our niche was after getting to know many of our congregation over the next few years, we discovered that many of the uh, married couples had uh, different Christian backgrounds. Uh, one of them uh, would come from the Catholic faith, the other would be a Protestant faith. So you'd have a Catholic married to a Protestant. So neither one of them would attend church as a result because it would cause problems in their marriage. Uh, we being Baptists claimed that uh, we were never part of the Catholic church and therefore uh, were not uh, Protestant uh, or protesting the Catholic Church and that seemed to ease them into exploring what we were all about. So we mainly tried to recruit people uh, into our church that were not going to any church at all. Uh, looking back we were able to help a lot of folks out and had uh, that had struggling marriages, bad home lives, and struggling spiritual lives and so it was truly a blessing to be able to have served these folks and to help them out. One of the things that we got uh, to do is host uh, different church groups from the U.S. Um, would come over and stay with us for a couple weeks and help us pass out literature. Uh, one particular group uh, that I remember was from Arkansas, and I believe this group was about, there was about 40 of them that came over. Uh, we let them stay in our house. We actually let them have our house, and we went and rented a bed and breakfast because it was cheaper to do so. Um, so they all piled in our house and set up cots and stuff, and uh, they would help us to help us uh, pass out flyers in the mornings, and uh, we would uh, show them uh, cool things in Ireland in the afternoons. And one of the coolest things was a huge castle about an hour away from uh, our uh, house in Selbridge uh, in the village called Trim. This castle um, and grounds were the uh, scene for the movie Braveheart. It was actually filmed in Ireland, even though it's a Scottish film, uh, or about Scotland. Um, with uh, If you remember the film, it was with Mel Gibson. And so it was filmed at Trim Castle uh, in Ireland. And so we could, uh, there you could tour the, tour the uh, the facilities, the castle there uh, for a small fee. So we did. So we took the folks up there from Arkansas. We went all the way up to the top, uh, which is about four stories high. And through this huge castle, uh, the tour ended in what was called the grand room or the master room on the first floor. And it had this uh, huge fireplace. And this thing was massive. I mean, you could put a whole tree in this thing literally and burn it. I mean, this thing was just huge. Um, the ceiling went all the way up to the third story in that master uh, or that uh, grand room and so um, and it had like a dome at the top and so the acoustics were really great in this huge room and it took up like probably a quarter of the castle um, one of the ladies uh, asked me if they could sing in the room so I asked the guide and he said uh, why not go ahead and let them sing and so uh, we all started singing and so there was about 50 of us I guess at the time at the time and we all sang the song Amazing Grace and it sounded awesome in the room I mean it was just really uh, a great uh, a spiritual moment um, some of the folks were uh, crying when we got done and then we proceeded to uh, exit the castle um, as we were leaving and when we came out there was a uh, trim castle has these large green grass uh, open plains around it and um, so when we came out there's always crowds of people out there uh, the crowds of people started cheering what a wonderful performance so they could hear the whole song outside in the courtyard and so I guess the way the castle was designed is at the top um, anything that was being said in that grand room, if there was an announcement to be made, uh, the acoustics were designed to throw it out into the to the uh, the courtyard there, and to the uh, green areas. And so everybody everybody out there started cheering, and it was really cool. Um, so uh, really uh, enjoyed that experience uh, over there in Ireland. So. 
Um, funny story about the, the church. Um, we would have everybody to our house once a month for a dinner social. Uh, it'd either be on a Friday night or a Saturday, uh, Saturday afternoon, evening. And so we would either buy pizza or cook a meal. And the uh, Malaysian people uh, would always bring their own food uh, for their family to eat. So we would, we would tell them that we had plenty for them uh, to eat also. Uh, and they said, we don't want to eat your food. Uh, we don't want our children eating your food. <laughs> I felt bad for the, for the Malaysian kids. It was kind of insulting, but I didn't take it as an insult uh, because that's just the way they think. Uh, they're thinking fat Americans, um, and, and that's the way the Asian people think about Americans typically, is that we're overweight, we're fat, uh, we eat bad foods, and we don't do anything. We sit around. Uh, so I felt bad for their kids, though. So all these other kids are eating pizza in front of them and ice cream, and these poor kids are eating white white rice and I'm just like okay so but uh, we managed to, to make it another funny story was my kids used to play with the kids in the neighborhood and uh, they had a lot of fun together and the neighbor kids uh, right behind us um, I think it was a couple girls um, Sinead was one of them and the, I can't remember the other girl's name so they came over and they would play with uh, play with my kids and uh, so they'd be out in the backyard playing on a swing set or doing whatever and so they the the neighborhood kids particularly liked Kool-Aid. Um, we bought a bunch of Kool-Aid packets uh, to bring with us before we moved there. And so one day my oldest daughter was showing the neighbor kids how to make Kool-Aid. And the neighbor kids wrote down the instructions and took some packets home with them and uh, to make their own Kool-Aid. And a couple of days later, the kids came back uh, with one, uh, one or two of the packets of Kool-Aid and gave them to my daughter, my oldest daughter. And they said they were not allowed to have Kool-Aid anymore. And my daughter asked them why. And the little girl, uh, I think it was Sinead, uh, had told her that when uh, they were making the Kool-Aid, the Kool-Aid stained, stained their fingers. And their mom said Kool-Aid would stain their insides. And she didn't want her kids to have stained insides. So <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Uh, the thinking on that, I was like, okay, so stained insides. All right. Um, so on a side note, uh, I was able, uh, when we were, when we were over there just thinking about kids in Ireland, I was able to, uh, save the life of a little boy, probably about five or six years old. Um, nothing, I mean, heroic on my part. I hope that if this kid's, uh, listening someday, <laughs> he ain't going to know who I am, but, um, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, I hope he does something great with his life. So I was walking into, uh, town one morning and I came up, uh, upon a couple of ladies with strollers that were talking on a sidewalk ahead of me. They were deep in their conversation, and a little boy was standing next to one of the ladies, and he saw something in the street. I don't know what it was, but he wandered out into the street, and I could hear a car speeding around the corner. So I ran out into the street, picked up the kid, and ran into the opposite lane where the car was coming, and the car, car narrowly missed both of us. Uh, the car was doing about 50 miles an hour around the corner and didn't stop, didn't slow down. The moms were in shock. I gave the little boy uh, back to his mother and she grabbed him and hugged him and I told the little guy to stay off the street. It was dangerous and uh, went on about my journey. Um, and so anyway, <laughs> just a little side note there thinking about the kids uh, there in Ireland. Uh, kids there, they're pretty, they're okay behaved. Um, uh, the the dogs were probably the best behaved dogs I've ever seen in my life. Um, literally, you could walk up to a grocery store and there'd be two or three dogs just sitting there with a leash laying on the ground. And those dogs would stay there until the owner came back out of the store. Um, owner would walk over there, pick up the leash, and the dog would walk with them uh, wherever they went. But the dogs wouldn't. You could go up and pet the dogs. Uh, dogs would just kind of look at you. They wouldn't move. They wouldn't go anywhere. They just sat there. Um, so, But anyway, back to uh, the Mission Church. So... If you've ever been to a church and stayed in one for any length of time, you know that problems arise from time to time and that cause people to leave. Um, I know as our congregation was growing that there would be some difficult problems that we would face, but I didn't, I did not see this one coming. Um, you see, we had a, another challenge with our hodgepodge group. We had uh, not only a lot of nationalities, we had folks that were very wealthy and folks that were very poor. Um, the wealthy ones did not look down on the poor ones and the poor ones didn't judge the wealthy ones for being wealthy. It wasn't that type of behavior. I believe that all of them had great hearts and were uh, caring, loving people with the intent of helping others in mind. Um, well, here we go. Um, we had an Argentinian family that was very poor. 
they had sought asylum in Europe uh, from oppression in Argentina uh, with the hopes of eventually coming to the United States. Um, Christian and Marie were the name of the uh, couple. They were husband and wife. And I believe they had three boys. Um, Christian got into Ireland because he was a jockey in Argentina and they needed these folks to help train the racehorses uh, there in Ireland. Horse racing is a really, really big deal in Ireland. There's these little betting stations. There are probably more of those than there are actually grocery stores in the country. Um, so anyway, Christian and Maria got invited. Uh, we invited them over to the church. Um, they started coming. They were there for uh, quite a, probably about a year or so. and. Um, they decided to have a social at their house on a Saturday to have a cookout. And uh, I tell you what, this guy knew how to cook. Uh, he had taken uh, two 55-gallon steel, steel drums, cut them in half, and uh, long ways. And so they kind of opened up, um, like if you were laying, they were laying on their side, kind of opened up that way. And so he had these, and he had all kinds of wood in there, had coal, uh, charcoal or something in there. I don't know what exactly what he was cooking with. And he had enough chicken on those grills to feed an army. And uh, Christian had some special seasonings that he had put on the chicken. I mean, it was just really super good. Um, their home uh, was a home that they rented. It was run down, old. Uh, it was not dirty, a uh, little cluttered. Um, but uh, you could tell that they had little money in life. And so uh, we all had a wonderful day and ate great food. And most everybody from the church had stopped by at some point in that day. And then, well, on Sunday get to church and uh, show up for church, which was, uh, I noticed was very odd that uh, Christian and Marie and their kids weren't there. And so I thought maybe one of the boys had gotten sick or something. I reached out to him via phone, left a message, didn't hear back. Sunday evening, they weren't uh, there at the evening service either. Uh, so I stopped by their home during that week and found out what happened. It turns out that one of the wealthy Irish families had stopped by for uh, the cookout and had returned later after everyone had left and brought an envelope of money and gave it to Christian. Uh, their heart, I believe, was to help the family out, um, but in reality, they took it as a great offense. Um, the Argentinian culture is very prideful-based, um, and they don't want help from no one, and this came this came through loud and clear. I tried to help out uh, Christian understand that the Irish, Irish family uh, felt bad, um, uh, and that uh, you know they were they were just trying to help and uh, he but the, the problem was is I could never get the Irish family to go back and apologize for it um, so before long everyone knew what was going on and then uh, division started happening in our congregation and in a matter of about uh, I don't know a month maybe six weeks uh, we had dwindled down to three families uh, I don't know what all was said what happened I tried to bring it back together but um, it, it was very you know it was very frustrating to me and my family and all of our hard work and effort over the course of three years was destroyed in a matter of months um, I was uh, so disgusted and frustrated at this stupid thing that had happened. Um, nonetheless, uh, we knew what our mission was. We knew it was going to be hard, and so we collected our thoughts, and we pressed on and continued our work. Um, while we were there doing mission work, um, the weather, like I said, and the ministry took its toll on our families. Uh, so we took several trips while we were there um, because it was so cheap to travel uh, throughout Europe um, and we also needed some sunshine. So one of the trips that we took was to the Canary Islands, which is a volcanic island um, off the coast of Africa. We love this small uh, set of islands. Uh, the main reason is that it had Oscar Mayer bacon real American bacon, not Irish back rashers, but real American bacon. Uh, we bought a pound of bacon every day we were there and fried it and ate it. Um, the other uh, great thing about the island was the heat and the sunshine. Uh, the island, uh, are, the islands are located off right, right across the coast of off, off the coast of Africa off of where the Sahara Desert is. So when you're looking, especially if you're in Texas and you're listening to us and you watch the uh, weather radar and you're looking for hurricanes, you go to Africa, you see the swirls starting to come off of the coast of Africa coming over this way. Those are, that's where uh, the Canary Islands are. And so the people of the Canary Islands, they were very hospitable, uh, very kind people. The cost of living was just dirt cheap there. Uh, the island was uh, black volcanic rock. So the beaches were actually black sand, uh, which was very, very interesting they had brought in regular sand um, to uh, kind of offset because 
uh, people would get creeped out of about the black sand, but uh, it was pretty uh, pretty interesting. Um, so it's a nice nice little island. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go there, go there. It's not a tropical paradise by any means, but it is a very interesting place, and the people are very nice there. Uh, another trip that we took while we were there, we did uh, manage to go up to Northern Ireland, over to Scotland and England, and to uh, visit some of the ca- and visited some of the castles along the way. Uh, we had took the uh, fast ferry from Belfast uh, into Scotland. Uh, we were able to travel across uh, Scotland. We visited, like I said, several castles and estates. Um, at one of the estates, uh, we were able to see what uh, is called—I don't know what it's called—it's a long-haired cow. I mean, literally, it was a crazy-looking thing. Uh, this cow had long hair all over it, um, and uh, so that was a very interesting thing. <laughs> and so we were also able to visit uh, St. Andrew's Golf Course and to see the famous bridge on the 18th hole. If you're a golfer, um, this has to be one of the most challenging courses I've ever seen. Uh, it seemed like there was no level spots on this course. All of it was either on a hillside or it had moguls. It looked like a ski, uh, um, a black diamond uh, ski mogul hill. Um, that's what the course looked like. Uh, so it was uh, definitely be challenging to be a golfer there. Um, while we we're there in Scotland, um, we spent some time in uh, with some friends of ours in Edinburgh, and then we traveled south from there to the Lake District of England and stayed with some more friends there. And so in the Lake District. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Uh, If you travel to England, make sure you spend a day up in the Lake District. It's pretty far north. It's almost on the Scottish border. Uh, So if you're in London touring and stuff, it'll be quite a drive. But I'm going to tell you it's absolutely worth it. The place is absolutely gorgeous. Um, Just a lot of mountains, rolling hills, lots of lakes, uh, hence the name Lake District. But just beautiful foliage on the trees, uh, plant life. I mean, just absolutely looks like paradise um, as far as um, if you like mountains and stuff like that it's definitely a place that you want to want to go also northern ireland is very very beautiful in ireland itself also but uh, the lake district was just kind of a step above um, everything else that we saw while we were there so very beautiful place and recommend uh, recommending that the people there and eh, they're not uh, you know great nice like they were in uh, the canary islands um, or in the rest of europe uh, the english can be kind of eh. Uh, sometimes Um, but uh, you know there were nice people there but uh, for the most part uh, you know they just went about their business they didn't want to sit down and chat with you and have a conversation so anyway um, the uh, also while we were there we got to spend a couple weeks in Portugal Um, I love Portugal and the people Uh, they were so kind to us with the exception of one vandal Uh, we rented a car when we were there and of course we bought the insurance always buy the insurance we had been on a beach uh, a couple times while we were there, and we kept parking in this parking lot that was free. One of the days that we were there, we stopped, uh, and there was a man standing in the middle of the entryway, and he was charging five euro to park. And I said, nope, and went around him, because you could clearly tell tell that he was a gypsy. He, he, he had gypsy attire, and so went around and parked the car. So we parked the car and proceeded to go to the beach and had lunch, and came back and that vandal uh gypsy guy had keyed every side of that car uh so i mean he had dug it in there real good so he was really mad that he didn't get his five euro so i was glad that i purchased the insurance uh while we were there we learned a lot about portugal um and uh, they're just very laid back people uh the area that we were in i think it's called the algarve is where we stayed at um they love to fish too so it seemed like everywhere we went they were fishing uh, even bought a fishing pole while I was there. It was really cool. It collapses. Uh, it's a collapsible pole. Collapses down to about 18 inches, but when you extend it, it's about 10 foot. It's like a surf rod. And so my best friend uh, here in the States, he is so jealous of this pole. Every time I go fishing with him and pull it out, he just shakes his head. <laughs> he wants one of those poles. Um, Portugal is also very beautiful. It was mountainous. Um, and the coast was, coastline was very beautiful. It had like these amber-colored, um, ambered and sand-colored, uh, tan-colored, I guess you would say, just uh, cliffs that went just straight up off of, uh, out of the water. And so uh, they had archways that you could actually 
sailboats through and everything else just gigantic off of the coast of uh, Portugal very beautiful very beautiful coastline if you're ever in Europe I would encourage you to visit the coastline of Portugal and I've, I've heard and seen pictures of Spain it's a lot like Spain I think uh, Portugal is more mountainous than the Spanish uh, coastline but uh, yeah you definitely want to check it out if you're over in Europe um, while we were also in Ireland we got to uh, visit Egypt Egypt was a very interesting place. We stayed in a place called Sharma el-Sheikh, which is on the southern tip of the peninsula, jetting out into the Red Sea. It was a desert, and it was hot, but it had its own kind of beauty. Uh, we were able to go snorkeling in the Red Sea while we were there. The water is very, very clear, and it's very, very salty, and it has a lot of beautiful fish. Uh, the cool thing about the Red Sea is that uh, you're super buoyant uh, in, the, in it because of the high salt, con salt content. So you float without very, with very little effort, uh, so it makes snorkeling very enjoyable, so you're not always trying to stay up. Uh, you just kind of float across the top of the water and snorkel. Uh, while we were there, we got to meet uh, some doctors, which I became friends with. Um, once again, my wife had gotten airsick on the way to Egypt. She had gotten very, very dehydrated um, on the flight over, and so she needed medical attention. We went to the doctor in the place that we were staying, and they fixed her up, put her on an IV, and got her feeling better. While we were there, I was talking to the doctor, and he and I just uh, hit it off from the beginning. He was one of those people that you meet in life, and you just click. And so it was uh, crazy. Like he, uh, it, it was crazy because he liked to play chess. I liked to play chess, and so um, almost every night while we were there, I would uh, go down to the uh, hotel lobby and play chess with him. And the, he had another doctor friend, and he would come out and play chess with us also. And we'd sit there and talk and stuff from probably about 11 o'clock at night till 1 or 2 in the morning. And so we had a lot of fun. I learned a lot about American politics from them, believe it or not. Uh, for example, uh, they said that once a year, U.S. Double, uh, diplomats, maybe a senator or a statesman, would come to eat to visit Egypt. They would go to the schools and shops and check out, see how things were going and developing in the nation of Egypt. And they, uh, as they, you know, as they should, because uh, the U.S. is what at that time was giving them eight billion dollars a year, and that's a B with a a, a billion with a B, not an M. Uh, so uh, to help develop their schools. And so the funny thing is that the uh, children only went to those school, those big, beautiful schools that they had over there um, once a year. And that was when the U.S. Dip diplomats were in hand, uh, in town, I'm sorry, when the U.S. diplomats were in town. Other than uh, that, they were closed. Uh, so it was all a show for the dough. <laughs> and uh, so we, uh, while we were there... Um, get off the politics thing. Uh, while we were there, we were able to climb uh, Mount Ararat or Moses Mountain, as they called it in Egypt. Uh, this was a mountain that uh, Moses supposedly uh, got the Ten Commandments from and uh, or on and uh, from God. And so it was very interesting climb. So we got up around, I think it was around 1230 a.m., uh, like just after midnight, we hopped on a bus. Uh, bus drove for about an hour and a half, uh, maybe two hours, to the base of the mountain. Uh, we were briefed on what to expect uh, and then began our ascent to the top of the mountain around 3 a.m. Uh, we had flashlights and headlamps. Um, the pace was very fast with few breaks, and we were getting winded. Uh, about an hour into the climb, we ended up renting a donkey to put some of the kids on top. And uh, I think one, uh, one of the uh, guides actually strapped our youngest daughter to his back and carried her up. Um, we eventually made it to uh, one of the peaks, and it was around 6 a.m., and we were able to sit and rest and watch the sunrise. And so when we got up there, it was just absolutely magnificent. Uh, the red and gold hues transcended upon the landscape below. There were very jagged and rough terrain that was, uh, it had like a, a tint of amber with a combination of very little plant life. Um, it was a desert, but it was beautiful. Shortly after the sunrise, we began to make our descent uh, down the mountain. The long descent came to an end in a valley that was very flat compared to the rest of the terrain. Uh, in the valley were several large buildings, uh, mainly surrounded by rock and desert and sand. Um, and uh, some of the buildings you could tour, tour through. And so the largest building was the uh, Catholic church that was down there. 
Uh, it was a standard uh, rock building, I guess you would say, made out of rock and clay. Um, maybe some, you know, uh, concrete along the way here and there, and the uh, on the outside. But the inside was uh, absolutely very interesting and beautiful, to say the least. Um, contained within this church, though. They had plaster walls and stuff like that and paintings and so on. Um, but inside of this Catholic church was a Muslim mosque um, within the same building. And there was also a small Jewish temple within the building. Um, as we toured through there, um, it was kind of like, well, okay, what is a mosque doing inside of a Catholic Christian church? And what is a Jewish temple doing in there next to a, a mosque? And so... Um, it was kind of interesting because they said the mosque didn't touch the church or the temple. There was like a little narrow, I mean, you barely put your hand in there from the walls of the mosque uh, to the wall of the uh, temple to the wall of the uh, Catholic church. And so, but uh, they pointed that out that it didn't touch anything. I don't know if that's a religious thing or what, but I'm like, you're in the same building. Um, but anyway, so um, the tour guide, you know, of course, people ask why. Well, what, why is this here? Um, the tour guy said that the Bedouin people, which are desert nomads um, in Egypt, they kind of travel around the desert, they go through multiple countries. Um, they would bring uh, Jews that were under persecution in Egypt at the time, sometime back in the 1600s, uh, to the church building for protection. Uh, the church would shelter them, and they would live there for years, and um, the church allowed them to build a temple inside the uh, church. Uh, the, uh, he didn't really go into how the, uh, the Muslim mosque had got into there. Um, he just said that, uh, I think he said something to the fact that they would travel and they needed a place to worship, and so that uh, the Catholic Church had provided them a place to worship in there. And so he didn't go into all the details. And um, so he stated something, you know, he also made a statement, uh, trying to think back here, um, to the effect that all religions uh, that believed in the Old Testament, that's what it was. So all the religions that believed in the Old Testament of the Bible had a spot at the place where Moses shared the Ten Commitments with the people. So I found it interesting that the Egyptian people lab labeled them as the Ten Commitments, not Commandments. And so, uh, <laughs> very interesting concept there. Uh, um, also, uh, just outside the church, um, there was a graveyard of sorts um, where former priests uh, and clergy were buried. Um, the grave was basically a long hallway with shelves on each side, and on each shelf was a dead man's bones. So it was kind of creepy as we walked through there. My kids were kind of looking at me like, these are real dead people. Um, so it was just bones um, that were there. Um, another thing that we... Uh, so. That was a very interesting trip up Moses uh, Mountain, Mount Ararat. Um, another thing that we got to do while we were there is we had dinner with the uh, with a Bedouin tribe. And so uh, on this uh, outing, uh, we rode a bus about an hour outside of, uh, side of the city uh, to the middle of the desert where we found a bunch of giant, what I would call lean-tos, uh, multicolored cloth tents. Um, there were women and children and men walking around. It was a portable town uh, in a literal sense. Um, there we were given camels to ride to an oasis in the desert. Um, so the men of the village or this town um, hopped on their camels, got us on our camels. And so my wife uh, was on a camel and she had our youngest daughter, which was literally tied to her back. Um, one of the guides had tied my youngest daughter to her back with long strands of cloth. She wasn't in any pain. It wasn't ropes or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, she was tied to, to my wife's back. And then uh, my son and my daughter had their camels and then I had mine. And I'm going to tell you right now, camels were no friend to me. I had, uh, I could not get comfortable riding this thing. It felt like I was riding on a two by four on the n narrow side, literally. And the pain had become so intense to ask one of the guys if I could just walk the rest of the way. And he laughed and he told me to put one leg on top 
Um, or actually, I think my wife told me to put one leg on top because the guide had told another guy up front and my wife had heard it. So uh, so she had told me, just put your leg over top and then you'll be more comfortable. And so, so we rode the camels for about another 30, 40 minutes into uh, the sand, the rocky desert. And I was like, we're going to an oasis. Don't see anything. Don't see anything. And so there's this big mountain up ahead. And so we kind of went around these jagged rocks. And sure enough, as soon as you came around there, it was this oasis. And it was pretty amazing. There were uh, palm trees, palm bushes, bushes, lush greenery everywhere. Uh, there was a pond of water in the middle. Um, not sure exactly how large it was. If I were to estimate the whole size of uh, the oasis itself, I would say it was about the size of a major league baseball field. Um, after we explored the oasis, uh, we went back into the town and um, that we had started at and uh, it was getting around sunset. Um, the scene was very beautiful. The women and children were cooking uh, dinner for everyone in the town. Uh, they had a very large bonfire, they had several large bonfires that looked like they had been burning for several hours and uh, had a lot of hot, hot glowing coals and ash. Um, the Bedouin people took these giant metal bowls um, that looked like they were um, handmade by hitting a hammer on them repeatedly. And they were kind of a bowl, but they were kind of had flat sides on them. Um, and so they would take these metal bowls and they placed them upside down over the fire, but they left one side of the fire exposed so that the air could come underneath there and it wouldn't kill the fire underneath the bowl. And so they began cooking all kinds of meats, vegetables, and tortillas on these metal bowls. And then they would uh, uh, beckon the folks that were there um, to come over and to uh, get their food. And so um, they beckoned our family over and we uh, got some of the food and it was good. It was kind of like a, uh, a shawarma or a gyro or a gyro, whatever you would not call it. Um, it had a large tortilla shell, had veggies and meat inside along with some type of sauce. I believe the meat was lamb uh, that they were cooking. Um, it was good, but it wasn't great, but uh, it definitely uh, filled your belly up. Um, what was really neat was the, uh, the seating arrangements there in this little town. Um, inside of these colorful lean-to uh, cloth tents, um, they had blankets all over the floor and so blankets you know stacked on top of each other and so you take your shoes off go in there and walk in your socks or barefoot and um, all along the uh, the sides of the uh, tent there were uh, like hay or straw uh, shaped like giant pillows I guess you would say and they had thicker blankets on top of them and so the pillows made a large like uh, horseshoe shape around the perimeter if I could explain it that way with, you know, nothing when you walked in, but on both sides and along the back. And it was very comfortable in the tent. They had it set up to where the back side of the lean-to and the sides didn't touch the ground completely. So there's about probably two feet of opening in the back side. On the front side, it was probably about five feet high. And then, of course, the sides went down uh, to meet the back. And uh, so they did that so that the air would flow through. And so you had a, you know, constant breeze blowing through there. Um and so it was very colorful, very relaxing. Um, I think we were taking naps, falling asleep and stuff. And then after dinner, the, uh, the Bedouin people brought in a giant hookah into all of the tents. Um, about this time it was dark. Um, they had set fires, they had torches and stuff. Um, so at the, whole, the whole town was lit by uh, torches. And uh, so they brought these giant hookahs into the tents and encouraged everybody to take a few puffs of the hookah. Uh, many that were there just started taking puffs without question. Um, there was no, <laughs> no way I was going to do that. Uh, I asked the guide, I said, what's in the hookah? And uh, he said, hashish. And I was like, oh, no thanks. And I discreetly uh, grabbed my family and, and got out of the tent. Uh, by this time, I think they had pulled the sides down on the tent. So pretty much all the smoke stayed in the tent. Uh, for those of you who don't know what hashish is, um, it's an extract of cannabis of the cannabis plant containing concentrations of a psychoactive resin. Uh, so you could literally trip on this stuff. And so um, I don't know that people do. Um, I didn't see anybody trip out from a few puffs, but um, you're going to get pretty messed up from smoking this stuff. Um, after about an hour or so, uh, we all boarded the bus uh, back to where we were staying. And so uh, it, was, uh, it was very interesting. And so... Um, 
Yeah, we after Egypt, we flew back to Ireland. Um, we I'm gonna say we spent another seven, eight months there, because uh, that was the last trip we took. Was I think no, actually, the last trip we took was Portugal. So um, we went back to Ireland after Portugal. Um, that's when things blew up with the uh, mission. Uh, got down to about three fam families and. At that point, we had decided uh, funds had gotten a little tight for us because the uh, inflation was going up in Ireland at the time. Uh, that was right around 2008. And so at that point, we decided to go back to the United States and raise some more support and visit with our church, uh, supporting churches. And so we left there in 2008 and came back to the U.S., um, and uh, landed in Chicago, and I'm going to stop there and tell you uh, next time we'll go into um, more of what I'm currently doing in my life. And so I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Career Library, um, and we'll discover, uh, we'll go into my stateside ministries um, that I started when I came back from Ireland and my family. Uh, so thank you for joining me today on this episode of Career Library. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button and the notification bell so that you don't miss out on any of our episodes. Until next time, this is Chris Jones signing off. Ten piece to a twenty quick. I got money busting out the money clip. Make a call and hit another lick. Someone get the money counter, I can keep on thumbing it. Turn a ten piece to a twenty quick. I got money busting out the money clip. Make a call and hit another lick. Someone get the money counter, I can keep on thumbing it. Okay, I'ma hit the twenty off a laptop. In a zoom meeting, making money is my backdrop. Ballpoint base hit harder than a slap shot. Flew up my baby told her rub me like I'm Epcot. I've been doing road on the go, go Get a bag and flip it, that's for sure Yeah, for sure, show. Sure. That was never talk about nothing Turn it down and go get you some money Turn a 10 piece to a 20 quick I got money busting out the money clip Make a call and hit another lick Someone get the money counter, I can keep on thumbing it Turn a 10 piece to a 20 quick I got money busting out the money clip Make a call and hit another lick Someone get the money counter, I can keep on thumbing it Eyes on the money, my brothers got my back Streets moving funny, so I been holding strap Not playing defense, we been on the attack Plotting the scheme and how we gon' get it back Designer all on you, but you can't buy the swag No mirrors, those fufu, I can see the tag You can bet if I spend in this, cause I get it back I'm 5G, a dollar, I can see the lag All I ever wanted was to have it all Got close, never froze, had to risk it all as a little boy, I wish I was a little tall Never made the league, I find other ways to let me ball Turn a 10 piece to a 20 quick I got money busting out the money clip Make a call and hit another lick Someone get the money counter, I can keep on thumbing it Turn a 10 piece to a 20 quick I got money busting out the money clip Make a call and hit another lick Someone get the money counter, I can keep on thumbing it